You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. It's been a while since we have been together in our, in our study in the Old Testament. We've been working our way through the Old Testament. Starting from the book of Genesis, we have found our way now to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We'll be there in just a moment. But let me help you this morning by reviewing quickly on where we have been and sort of keep you up to pace and speed on where we're at this morning. If you recall, in 1 Samuel 17, it's the story of David and Goliath. It's a great story. And we spent some time talking about that. <clears throat> David is a young man, and he, and he is used by God for a great delivery. God uses him to deliver his people. Um, and, and we could say for this young man, this is sort of this uh, meteoric rise. He goes from a nobody, from a zero to a hero overnight. And, and David is just blessed. He's blessed. And as we see him, we, we find that he acts wisely. Um, Everything David touches sort of turns to gold. Everything he does, he does well. I mean, he's now in charge of a portion of the army. He behaves himself wisely. He has great victory, and people love him. We come to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and in verse 16 you find these words. It says this, that all Israel and Judah loved David. This is not hyperbole. This is not an exaggeration. They loved him. They adored him. At this point in David's life, he could change his name to Raymond. Okay? Because everybody loved him. For those of you who have no idea, that's okay. Just stick with me, all right? He's doing well. He's doing well. But it all changes overnight. And Saul is not among the category of those who love David. A matter of fact, he is envious of David. He doesn't like the songs they've been singing about him. You know, the country groups in, in Israel are singing this song. Saul has slain his thousands, and, and David his tens of thousands. And so now Saul is envious. He's suspicious of David. And, and it gets so bad now that David is on the run. And, and he says then to Jonathan in chapter 20, I think it is, in 19, Saul says, kill him. I don't want him around anymore. I don't want him to be part of this kingdom. And so they hunt David down. And it gets so bad that David says to Jonathan in, in chapter 20, verse 3, he says, Jonathan, I'm serious about this. There's but one step between me and death. And now David, the golden boy, is running for his life. Uh, in his desperation, he makes a real bad decision. He goes down to Gath. He thinks that the only way to get away from Saul is to get out of the kingdom. So he goes to the land of the Philistines. It's a bad choice. And, and it's a bad place. I mean, here he comes strolling into Gath. Gath was the home of Goliath, who started this whole rise to fame thing. He took his head off with Goliath's sword. Now he strolls into Gath, Goliath's hometown, Goliath has four brothers, and David comes in with a sword on his side. It's Goliath's sword. A bad idea. And, and the Philistines aren't happy about this. They remember the songs as well, and so they take hold of David, and David has to act like he's crazy. And the king of, of Gath says, what, what? I don't want to deal with this, 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 this crazy guy. Get him out of my sight. And God supersedes David's foolishness and by grace delivers him 
Not only does he deliver him, David then writes the Psalms 56 and 34, which are great Psalms for us today. But David continues to be on the run. And he's running. He's running for his life. Look with me, if you would, now at 1 Samuel chapter 22 this morning. Starting at verse number 1. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. We'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a Baptist church to me. I'm not sure if that was the beginning of it or not. But all these folks in trouble sort of gather themselves around David now. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. And, and maybe for some of us, we, we have forgotten about Moab. Moab is not part of Israel. A matter of fact, Moab is a pagan nation. If you recall the history of the Bible, you understand that Moab started because of Saul. Not Saul, I'm sorry, because of Lot and his daughter. It was incestuous. What? This is okay? I don't know. All right, we'll try this. I don't know why it does that. They tell me it's a metal plate in my head. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. I'm not even sure if I have a metal plate in my head, to be honest with you. Um, so the, the nation is started because of Lot and his relationship with his daughter. Moab is the first nation that restrains Israel as they come out of Egypt as a new nation. If you remember from the book of Judges, you have Eglon, the king, who, who oppresses them mightily. And Moab worships Chemosh. She's a false god. Yet here is David now on the run, and in chapter 22, verse number 3, he goes to Moab, and here's what he says. And he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. Sometimes we read that and we don't think about it, but listen what's happening here. Here is David now, and he goes to Moab. I don't want you to miss this. There's some really powerful stuff in this short portion of Scripture. He goes to Moab to have the king of Moab protect his family and his brothers and his sisters. It's strange, actually. But I want to help you with something this morning. In order to do it, we've got to go back about 100 years. Not 100 years for us, back to 1914, but 100 years from David's time. So let's go back 100 years, and I think as we look at this story, you're going to see amazing things about the God that we serve and worship and how He is good, great, and kind to His people even when they don't know and understand it. Look at the book of Ruth this morning. Ruth chapter 1. And this is a great story. We've been there before. We've been in Ruth in the past. Ruth is one of the great short stories of all times. It's perhaps one of the greatest love stories of all times. It's a great book. And here's how Ruth starts out. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. And, and that statement's packed with a lot. Okay? If you remember the judges when they ruled, it was a time of apostasy in Israel. Every person did that which was right in their own eyes. They had turned away from God, and Israel during that time was often under God's judgment. This was God's promise to them. He told them back in Leviticus chapter 26 that when I bring you into the promised land, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And part of that curse was famine. And so we get to, to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and it tells us exactly that. 
the country now is they're suffering, they're struggling because of their sin and their apostasy, and now there's famine. It's a bad time, it's a difficult time. Then he says this there's a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, and that's interesting in itself. Bethlehem means house of bread. It was where the, the, the nation of Israel produced much of their grain, a house of bread. How ironic that this house of bread now has, has, has famine. But a certain man went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And listen to me, what I just told you about Moab, this man, we'll, we'll introduce you to him in a moment, Elimelech, Elimelech knows all these things. He knows about Moab. He knows about their culture. He knows who they worship. And yet he makes a decision based on now and not eternity. And the decision is, hey, i got to feed my family. I don't care about what's happening with the nation. I don't care about our sin, about repenting. I'm going to go where there's food. And so he takes his family to Moab. Verse number 2. And the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, which means beautiful or sweetheart. And the name of his two sons, Milan and Chilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Look at verses 3 through 5 now. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them, wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Milan and Chilion died, also both of them. And the women, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. And here is Elimelech now, and he, he wants to escape the famine, and he walks right into death. He makes a poor decision, bad decision, which leads to sad experiences, which produces deep, deep disappointment. And so he goes, he dies. His two boys then marry Moabite women. And then they die. And here's the picture. You have a funeral, two weddings, and now two funerals. It is tragic. If we were to hear music now, you know what you'd hear? You'd hear the bagpipes. Amen? Oh, they're sad. They're very sad. They'd be playing Amazing Grace right now. Our Scottish friends don't believe that, but that's the truth, right? When I was a kid, I always thought, at my funeral, I want them to play bagpipes. I want them to play Amazing Grace. And you know why I want them to do that? I want everyone to cry. That's why. That's, 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 that is the truth. I just wanted everyone to cry and feel sorry about, about my passing. I wanted them to just weep because, and, and maybe because of bagpipes and maybe because of the emotions and all those things. Um, but listen to me. You know, I've changed that now. That's not my plan for my funeral. I, I, amen for what? For dying? Oh, no, no. No, my funeral plans, not the bagpipes. All right? Um, but, but, my, my idea now about the funeral is I'm not doing it so everyone cries. You know what about my funeral? And listen, take notes of this. We've talked about this. Um, I don't want it about me at all. I want it about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice that this is not all there is. Because there's life beyond all of this. And I don't want to... We can play bagpipes, but no one crying. Alright? That's the deal. But this is sad. This is tragic. And what has happened now to Naomi, it's real. It's, it's deep. It's... it's it's hurt. She lost a husband. She has lost two sons. And she has nothing. This is now a family that is teetering on the, on the brink of extinction. This is before social 
programs and networks, they're in real trouble. They're in real trouble. And then something happens in, in chapter 1, verse number 6. Naomi hears now that the Lord had visited his people. And, and this is what happens. In the midst of their sadness and their sorrow and their grief, there is good news. Because God has intervened. God has stepped in. God has begun doing something back in Bethlehem. And Naomi hears it. And she thinks, you know what? I'm going to go home. I'm going home. So she gets her two daughter-in-laws together and she says, listen, I love you girls. We've been together 10 years. And she did love them. And she said, but listen, I, I have nothing for you. I'm, I'm old. I don't have a husband. I don't have any sons. Go back to your country. Go back to your God. Make a life for yourself. I love you. Go back. And both daughter-in-law say, no, we love you. And they cling to her. And she once again says, listen, no, I'm serious. You need to go back. And they say, no, no. And, and finally, Orpha goes back to her people. But Ruth doesn't. And, and it's, it's one of the great statements in chapter 1 where Ruth then says to her mother-in-law, she says, listen, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Where you live, I will live. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And we have in that moment Ruth's conversion. She becomes a follower of the true and living God and goes back then to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. After 10 years, Naomi shows up. She comes back to town, and the whole town gathers around her, and they say, is this Naomi? Is this the woman who left ten years ago? They don't, they don't recognize her. And she says, well, wait a minute, listen, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me beautiful. Don't call me sweetheart anymore. Call me Mara. Bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full with a husband, and I came back empty. No husband, no kids, no grandkids. And she just exposes herself. She, she's around the community of God and she says, I'm hurting, I'm struggling, which is okay. And then something else amazing happens in the story. And, and we find that this is about harvest time or, or barley time. And so it's a time of food. And, and Ruth then says to her mother-in-law, listen, I love you, I don't want to starve to death. Um, I will go out and work. I will glean the fields. And, and Israel had a plan that, that farmers would leave part of their field for those who were poor. They could glean and they could make um, some, get some food and, 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 and be sustained. And so Ruth does this. She goes out and she works. And it just so happens, the Bible says, by hap, she comes to a lot, and the lot is a, of a man who is related to her. His name is Boaz. Listen, ladies, if you're not married, you need to get a Boaz. You do. Boaz is a man of character, a man of integrity. He loves the Lord. I mean, he, he's, legit, he's the real deal, man. He goes to work and he says to his employees, listen, God bless you guys, and they all shout back, and God bless you. Who says that to their boss? Right? Other than Dan. We see Will starting tomorrow. But, but this is the kind of guy he is, that, that they love him, and he's a man of integrity and, and honor and character. And he, he goes to work, and he looks out, and he says, there's Ruth in the field, and, and, and she catches his eyes. I don't know what she looked like, but, but I, have a, I have a hunch that she was beautiful. I have a hunch she was beautiful. And he says, wow, that's the cat to me, wow, right? And he says, who's that? who's that girl? And they say, let's Ruth, the Moabitess. And it's a great story. You should maybe this afternoon read the story of Ruth. And uh, to make a long story short, 
he says to her, I will redeem you. I will purchase you. I will be your husband. And, and he makes it happen. And then we come to the end of the book, chapter 4. And I want you to see now verse number 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. Ruth, the Moabitess, marries Boaz, the Hebrew. They fall in love and they have a little baby boy. And the women of the town name him, they name him Obed. Which is kind of a different name. I mean, we got a lot of different names, but it's Obed. And Obed then grows up and he has a son and his son's name is Jesse. And Jesse grows up and he has a son and you know his son. His son's name is David. And now, stay with me. okay? I want you to know something. When Naomi and Ruth went through all of these heartaches and problems and trials, they could have never dreamt that this would happen. Never. They were desperate. They were destitute. But they would have never dreamt. Naomi never thought she'd have a grandchild. Ruth never believed that she might have a son. And not only that, not just a son, but look at this. She becomes the great-grandmother of David, the king of Israel. And not only that. Matthew chapter 1. Her name is mentioned in the line of individuals who are descendants that lead to Christ Himself. It's amazing. It is simply amazing. Now, with that thought, look back at our text, 1 Samuel chapter 22 this morning. Are you sort of getting a clue now why David might go to Moab? He goes to the king of Moab. Why? Because, and David had nothing to do with this, because his great-grandmother was a Moabitess. Because that blood ran through his veins. Because there was a connection there that David had nothing to do with. It was there. And so he goes to the king, and he asks if he'd take care of his family. And the truth is, look what happens in verse number 4. And... He brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. Here's what happens. David takes him to the king of Moab, and he does protect them. He does watch over them. Listen to me. 100 years before that event, our God was already at work making it possible so that David, later on, in his distress, in his grief, God was orchestrating the circumstances so that David, 100 years later, would find hope and relief from his present distress. What a God. What a great God that we serve. God was planning this for him. And what I want you to see this morning is I want you to understand the bigness the greatness, the goodness, and the sovereignty of our God. That's what Paul said. Paul said, if this God is for us, who then can be against us? Romans chapter 8. And that's the truth. Now listen to me this morning. I don't want to minimize anyone's hurt or distress or grief. That's not my goal this morning. Some of you folks, I know and I understand that, that in your past, 
you have been hurt. Your childhood, your yesterdays. Um, they weren't happy places. Maybe there's dysfunction. Maybe there's brokenness. Maybe there's a lot of weeping and sorrow. I, I, I get that. Or maybe for you, it's the present. Maybe 2013 has been a year where it's been a struggle with illness. Maybe there's been tragedy and death and loss. Maybe financial difficulties. And as far as you're concerned, it's like, hey, 2013, good riddance. Right? I get it. But I want you to know something. Here is Ruth and Naomi. And I promise you, they would have never believed what God was going to do for them and what he did for them and their, and their posterity in the future. God was at work. And I want you to know something this morning in your life, in my life. God is at work. He is big. He is great. He is good. And this God is in control. This God. I was thinking about this story, and it just amazed me. As I, I've read this over and over again about David going to the king of Moab, and, and this is the first time it's ever connected with me, with me that he had this past and that God was doing something and orchestrating something far in advance. And then I began to think about my own story. I don't want to bore you this morning. I don't want to make this about me because you have these stories as well. But I was thinking about how God took the lives of Ruth and Naomi and through their tragedy and through their pain and through their disappointment, in their lives they found a blessing. But then 100 years later, their, her great-grandson finds hope and relief because of that. And about 1,200 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ is born and we share those blessings because of Him. And so it just struck me. And then I just thought about my own life um, and, and just difficulties that I've faced in my life and seeing how God has just taken those things and he's, he's brought wonderful things from them. I remember when I was seven years old, I, I remember the house, I remember the doorway when I first found out that my parents were going to be divorced. So I remember it. And I remember hearing those words and then my brother and I begging and pleading with my parents not to get a divorce. We were weeping at the door. And we made this promise that we would be good and we would behave because we really thought it was our fault. That's how kids think, right? That was, it's on me. And it was devastating. It was devastating. That's not God's plan. That's not God's purpose. His purpose is for one man, one woman for life. We live in a sin-fallen world and that's what happened. I remember it. And at the time, at seven years old, I didn't glory in those things. It was devastating. Right? Later on in life, this is kind of humorous in a sense, but I think it's kind of tragic as well. I was telling my wife about this the other day. Um, when I had grown up and got married, I was in a church service. I was sitting with my wife, and the pastor used me for an illustration, but didn't ask me. Don't you love that? Now, I don't, oh, maybe I do do that. I shouldn't do that. Um, if, I, if I use my family, I ask them first. If it's Ian Cameron, I don't care. I just use it. It doesn't matter. You've got broad shoulders, all right? But, but he was given an illustration, and the illustration was from the book of Acts where Paul was shipwrecked, and, and they were grabbing onto boards and pieces of wood, and some had larger pieces and some had smaller pieces. And then he said, that was sort of my life. He, he named my name and said, you know, that's Brother Dressler. He you know, came from a broken home and broken problem and broken issues and, and went on and on about that. And, um, and then he made this weird statement. He said, um, now Brother Dressler, you know you're in trouble and they just do 
You're a really good guy, right? But Brother Dress was a man of more morality and character and virtue. And he said, but, and he, had, he had two younger daughters who were teenagers, and I wasn't interested in them, I was already married. But he said, um, but I would never want my daughters to marry a man like that. Well, that was, isn't that bizarre? Is it just me or is that weird? Is that, is that really freaky weird that you would say that about someone like, I'm, I'm not whole or I'm broken or I've got these issues that, right? It's weird, right? And it's hurtful. And I was just a kid. I didn't know any better. And it's just like, oh, that was strange. But I guess, good for you. Your daughters are better than I am. I, I don't know. It was weird. And I remember jobs that I've had in ministry that I've hated. And it's like, what in the world am I doing here? I don't understand it. I don't get it. But listen to me. As I thought back about my story, and you think back about your story, we all have our stories. We've all been there. You have your pain. You have your grief. You have your suffering. You know what I'm talking about. As I thought about that, I thought, you know what, God? You're so much bigger than all of that. All of that. I love what... John Newton said, he has a quote, and it's one of my favorites. He says, I am not what I ought to be. You know, John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, the slave trader who was saved. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen to me. I wasn't, maybe I was broken, but I'm redeemed, man. (laughs) I'm redeemed. And through all of that and those struggles and the things we don't understand, listen to me. God was doing something. And today, listen to me, today I am the man that I am because of all of those things. And I tell you this. I would not change any of them. Any of them. Because God in His goodness, God in His kindness, God in His graciousness, His bigness, His wonder, His awesomeness was planning in advance for me and for you. And He was orchestrating circumstances. Yes, they were painful. Yes, they were hurtful. Yes, they were hard and difficult. But He was doing it so that in my future, I would have hope and relief, and comfort. Not only for me, my children. And who knows, maybe for their children, right? This is our God. And He should be praised this morning. He should be worshipped. He is always thinking in advance for you. You are the apple of His eye. He has lavished those who know Him with His love. He loves you. He sings over us. This is our God. And He's planning everything. He is like this. He plans it all in advance. He knows what you need. He knows what I need. And He will provide. This is how He always works. This is how big our God is. Before creation, He knew and understood that man would rebel. And we would be determined, hell-bound, because of our sin. And you know what he did? He had a plan before the foundation of the world. I want you to see on the screen right here, you'll see uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And it talks about this. It's talking about the, the Antichrist. It says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life 
of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This is our God planning in advance for your salvation. He saw that man was sinful, that man had caused a great chasm between him and his holiness, and he was without hope. And yet, before the foundation of the world, his plan was to allow his son to be the sacrifice for our sin. This is our God. This is his bigness. This is his greatness. He was writing us into the story before the foundation of the world. It's an amazing thing. And then he says this the Lord says this in Matthew chapter 25, verse number 34. He says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is our God. Listen to me this morning. David goes to Moab. He goes there hoping that the king of Moab would help him. And he did help him because his blood ran through David's veins. Not anything to do with David. God had planned that in advance through Ruth, the Moabitess. And from there we have Christ and all of it. He was planning in advance. It's not just for David. It's for all of his children. And so this morning, listen to me. I want you to face 2014, no matter what your situation, no matter what your circumstance, no matter where you find yourself. I want you to face it this morning and this year in hope. In hope. That whether I understand or see it right now, I'm convinced that this God that I serve, that this God that I worship, He is good, He is great, He's big, He's sovereign, He's in control. And He is planning whatever I'm facing right now. There is a purpose, there is a plan. He is already thinking in advance for the future. For relief and glory and comfort to me, to you, to our children, to their children, to their children until He comes again. If God be for us, who can be against us? This is the Christian life. This is the way we ought to be living it. I love what Augustine said. He has this quote talking about, about mankind and, and our relationship with God. And he says this, The Christian life should be one alleluia from head to toe. And it's true. Not to minimize our grief, I know it's real. But can we not praise Him even in the midst of that knowing that this good God has a plan for our future and He is working. And no matter what we face in 2013 or what we will face in 2014 and beyond, He is already orchestrating circumstances for His glory and our good. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love You. And You have been good to us. You're always good. Father, I know that, that we struggle. You know that we struggle. And Father, there are people in this church who have had tremendous difficulty. They've had a year of grief and sorrow and sickness, of financial turnaround. And Lord, we're, we're not minimizing that. You don't minimize that. You know. You, you are touched with the feeling of our infirmity. But Lord, I pray this morning that as we have gathered together, as we've seen your love and watch care for David a hundred years in advance, that you would help us to see you this morning for who you are. And that by your grace and your